Welcome to the Mindful Paths podcast with Nick Day and Harry Kalimnios. I'm Harry, an experienced executive wellness and longevity coach, keynote speaker and author of two best-selling books titled The Thought Gym and Working Well. And I'm Nick, an executive coach, founder of a multi-million pound award-winning business, an age group international athlete and a husband and parent to two beautiful children. Despite our different lifestyles and different approaches, we share similar values and we hope that by listening in on our conversations, we'll unearth some insights that may just help you to achieve your goals. Perhaps you want to become a better parent, boss, colleague, friend, or perhaps you simply want to live a longer, happier, and healthier life. Well, we're here to help you to silence that inner voice of doubt that lives within us all. As I always say, Nick, if we train the mind, the rest will follow. Absolutely right, Harry. So let's get started. Harry. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you. It's been two uh, weeks. We didn't manage to record last week, so it's, uh, it's good to be here. It's, it's good to connect. As a, I look forward to our chats, though, because it does enliven me and makes me feel like I'm doing something productive with my evening, which is which is good. And actually, just prior to this, I was editing our last episodes. I've been out. And in there, you said, Nick, with your injury, you could go and swim. You know what I did? I literally, I've probably still got the goggle marks for those watching on video. Yeah. I rushed to the pool, got a quick 2K swimming using arms only, and I'm feeling an awful lot better for it. I'm in the mode now when you've done exercise and I'm feeling upbeat, I'm feeling positive, endorphins are going through. I'm in, I'm in a good space. So thank you for that. I feel good after exercise, so... Do feel yeah. good. I was actually, um, well, we don't plan necessarily what we're going to talk about. We tend to see where the conversation takes us. This is what I wanted to raise. And it's, it's popped into my mind literally in the last 20 minutes. I was driving back from the swimming pool and I was listening. I'm a Spurs fan for those listening. And then, you know, apologies for that because we're not the first. I, I'm, also, I'm also a Spurs fan, but I can't name any player and I haven't followed them for about 25 years. But Spurs is my DNA. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good enough for me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't apologise for it based on what I'm going to say next. But I was listening to uh, another podcast, the Spurs podcast. And on there, they've got a guest, uh, Lee McQueen, who's actually one of the, I think he won The Apprentice many years ago. And he's oh, one of I the, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the guest speakers on there. And uh, he's a diehard Spurs fan, right? But he said then, and for those not familiar, we've just sacked our manager. We've, the assistant manager's taken over. Um, we're not playing very well. Harry Kane's our star striker, may end up going somewhere else. And it, it, for some, it could be quite depressing, right? But what he said on the podcast, and it, it hit me quite hard when I was driving back because it's, I usually like his commentary. I like, quite like what he has to say about Spurs and I tend to follow him. But he said, Nick, oh, we didn't say Nick, but it felt like he was saying Nick because I was listening <laughs> to him. He said, guys, the hard thing about being a Spurs fan is that it's the hope that kills you. I'm like, whoa, wow, that's big, that's deep. Because for me, hope is one of the most powerful drivers of positive change there is. And actually, without hope, what have we got? I mean, and I was like, wow, that's that brings everything together here. And we're and I'm one of these, listen to the podcast, getting pulled along with the narrative of depression as it was. And even mm. at the start of this, I've already apologized once for being a Spurs fan. So it just shows how much this has subconsciously got into my into my yeah. brain listening to the podcast today. Because actually there's so much also to be hopeful for. With all the, you know, how many two, three hundred clubs in the in, in the league system, we're in fourth place. That's not too bad. We're a Champions League slot. We've got one of the best strikers in the world. I and mean, there's loads and loads, best stadium in the world. Yeah. And yet all we're focusing on is the negative. And then he said yeah. that line, it's the hope that kills you. And I'm like, whoa, I mean, wow, that's that's profound. And I don't agree with it. And I'm, it, it it switched me out of that mindset. Like, God, I'm being pulled along and I don't even realise it. And it's just yeah. getting well, into us subconscious. I've already apologised for being a Spurs fan, which just shows how deep it's gone. This is a lot of life. I mean, I've got two 
contrarian views on that, if you like. Um, from the one hand, I understand what he's trying to get at. And it's this, this, this idea. I think the way I would phrase it would be slightly different is that like by having expectations, expectations often lead to disappointment because you have these high expectations about whatever it is, how you're going to perform, how business could do. And it's, and although we need those expectations, because another word for expectations might be goals or targets sure. or whatever. Um, when we don't get those, we're disappointed. But if you have no expectation about, let's say you go to a party and you've got no expectation about whether it's going to be good or bad, who's going to be there, then you're more likely to have a good time. That being said, the actual opposite is true. You're, you're familiar with Viktor Frankl, right? Man's search for me. I am indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you actually quoted him in episode one as well. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we did, right? And, and in there, he talks about it's those inmates of the prisoners of wars in the second world war for those of you that don't listen uh, are familiar with the book and he was recounting his experiences there and it was the people that had hope of a better tomorrow that tended to do better because they had something to live for and so for me it's it's like everything right it's it's just how you view the world it's how you frame things and the reason i thought it'd be quite good to talk about this and, and you're talking about you know, he's thinking about the hope that kills you and, and you're focusing on the negative is because I've done quite a lot of work on this and, I, and I'm sure I've shared this with you before, but I'll share a bit. I'm someone who's quite, uh, I would, yeah, a critical would be a nice word of saying it, I guess. I'm quite observant, right? So I'd probably make quite a good book editor because I could see the mistakes. My natural default is to see the mistakes. And, and actually when I did some work with Tony Robbins, not personally, but just on his audios, uh, he talks about a primary question, um, that we all have a primary question that drives us a lot of the time. And I think my primary question a lot of the time when I see any situation is, how can I improve on this? Right. So not necessarily how can I make it better, but how can I improve on this? And, and so when I see things, I'm always looking for the faults in it, in it. One thing that I, I, I did, um, 12, 13 years ago, that literally changed my outlook on life. And I continue to do to this day is I was challenged at the end of a talk, uh, one of the speakers, not challenging me, but challenging the audience to keep a gratitude journal for 30 days. Yeah. And I started doing that, like three things that you're grateful for each day and started writing that each night in my book. And I did that religiously for 30 days. And after 30 days, I noticed that my whole brain had effectively been rewired and I'd started to see the positive in situations more. And to the point where I continue to do it, and I do it to this day now. And actually about four years ago, I got my family involved and we do it through a family WhatsApp group as well. So I do my own book and I do a family one and it's really good. Um, but what it does is it, the, what I've told a lot of students and uh, this, I want to share what happened the other day with a, a student of mine, but the reality is there's both good and bad in the world, right? Both exist. And actually I was saying to the student, because we were talking about doing feedback and we have this formula that we use called win, right? W I N. So what was wonderful about what you saw in that person speak? And I say, there's always something good, even if they didn't say anything, right? They gave it a go. They've got a nice smile. They stood well, whatever. What could be improved? And then what is nice? What did you notice that was nice? So effectively, and I say 80%, I would say, of your feedback should be W and N, right? What was wonderful, what was nice? And 20% should be stretching them to help them be better. And I said, look, both exist, right? If you want to look for the good in the world, you'll find it. If you want to look for the bad, you know, just go onto Twitter, pick up a newspaper, watch the news, you'll find the bad. The reality is that more good in the world exists than bad. Now, that may be a belief that I have, 
as opposed to reality. Although there is a book I read somewhere which shows how the, the world has improved innumerably in all sorts of ways uh, from an objective point of view. But she had a real challenge with this. She was like, no, you know, that's wrong. Like there's way more bad in the world. This like these guys are th- they're 15 years old. And I said, look, you might think differently, like in three times your age, right? Because I thought like that as well. And if all you do is watch EastEnders and the news and go on Twitter, then you are going to think like life is toilet, right? But both exist. And it's what you choose to look at that matters because that's what's going to be your experience of life. And so it might be true that the world is 90% bad and you choose to focus on the 10% that's good. Now, I'm not saying that you ignore other challenges, but what I'm saying is what t- people tend to do is ignore to the detriment all the good and focus on the bad. Yeah. And that's but not... That's an, it's an inside-out problem in the way that you've... And I understand it. it, it there's some um, similarities here, what you talked about in the last episode about how you, you know, whether a car is doing 30 miles an hour, is that fast or mm. slow? It's when you put me yeah. in a playground, it's too fast on the motor where it's too slow, right? But I say it's an inside-out problem because the things you're talking about there is is we're feeling our thinking. So we are seeing, we were choosing what we, almost choosing our thoughts or choosing what we want to allow into our minds that create the thoughts, that create the feelings, not necessarily our circumstances. I use that in reference to the Tottenham example, right? Lee McQueen in that example is feeling, he's feeling his thinking. All he can think about is we've lost a manager, we're back in, you know, cahoots again with what's going on. But it's not necessarily our circle. I mean, you might say maybe it's sad that we've lost a manager that's our circle, but we don't know what the new manager is going to do yet. So he's creating yeah. a narrative to say that's definitely bad. The reality is we don't actually know until the, the assistant manager comes in, Stellini, and we see what his vision is and we see the results that follow. We can't make that judgment. It's a complete prediction. So we can only therefore feel what we're thinking about that. Whether you think that's a negative move, it's bad we've lost the existing manager. These are all feelings that are created from our thoughts, not necessarily our circumstances. And that's why I say it's an inside-out problem, because our reality of our circumstances in the Spurs example is we have the arguably the best stadium in the world, a £1 billion stadium. We're fourth in the league, which is exactly where we probably should be. Certainly, probably better than it should be based on spend. And there's lots of analysis that says the more you spend, the higher in the league you finish. And if you actually look at our core circumstances right now, there's an awful lot to be positive about. Um, and I think that just sort of ties in. It's very easy, though, for us to focus on the negatives. Let me ask you, why do you think people, I mean, you deal with this all the time as a, as a career. Why do people like to hold on to the negatives more than the okay. positive? Here's, this is what I want to tell people as well, because um, it's not about being a negative thinker or a positive thinker. It's actually a bit about being a survivor, because think about this, right? We wouldn't be here having this discussion right now had our ancestors not focused on things that were maybe unusual out of place not quite right because if you all you saw was like the pleasantries like in the the flowers around your cave when you came home you might not notice like the, i don't know the pile of lion poo on the floor or whatever <laughs> it might be right and then you, you'd get eaten and so actually our survival depends on the fact that we focus on threats to us otherwise we wouldn't survive so actually our natural way of being is to do that. And then it's compounded because think about this, right? You go to school and you do a spelling test at eight years old or 10 years old, whatever it is. And actually maybe you're, you've got kids who are around that age, you're a little bit older now, but they come home and they get seven out of 10, right? Okay. Some, there's maybe three crosses, right? A teacher or the student or the parent might say, you know, what happened there, right? You got three wrong. 
They didn't say, oh, you got seven out of 10 right. It's like you got three wrong and big red pens, although some schools now they're bad in red pens for whatever reasons and <laughs> talking about green. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so we focus then on what we didn't do right, right? We don't focus on the 80% we got right. We focus on the 20% we got wrong or something like that. And so whilst, yes, you want to improve and you want to do things, actually, usually most, um, at least from my, my recollection, most, um, I guess, psychology studies, all these things we're looking at, actually positive reinforcement tends to create more of the behavior that you want. So for example, like if you're a, um, obviously you've had children. So when they were learning to walk, right. When Eva, Leo were learning to walk, whatever. And they took, I know, two or three steps and they fell down. Did you say, Oh my God, you're such a dumbass. You, you've spent months looking at me, learning how to walk. You've given it a go. You should have been able to walk all the way to the end. You only made it two steps to the end. You didn't, I presume. You said, well, I'd be oh, a terrible parent if I did, but I said I did. Yeah, exactly. You said, oh my God, my baby's a genius, right? They've started to walk, right? Even though they've just done two steps and fallen on their... Newsflash here though, Harry. Every parent thinks their child's a genius. So actually, yes. I definitely yeah. thought that. Well, to be honest, every child is a genius because actually a lot of what I learned has come from children but that's another story. But the point is you give that positive reinforcement, like, oh my God, you're amazing. Da, 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 da. And then the child wants to do it more and more and more and more. Right. So when we have negative reinforcement, we tend to kind of shy away. I mean, I, I spend a lot of my time giving positive reinforcement, even though some students, they actually do, or they, they appear or they say that they tend to do better with, um, you know, being shouted at a bit or being told what they did wrong. Right. Sometimes it's like sports people. And I'm thinking, Maybe, maybe that's just how they're used to it. I personally, I, I do better with positive reinforcement. Most people, most studies that I've looked at tend to say that that tends to work better for a lot of people. It's not to say that you always like sugarcoat the thing that you need to do, but there's a different way of doing it. And this is what I was talking about before in our intro and outro that we might talk is about saying what you want as opposed to what you don't want. So instead of like normally when I'm doing public speaking lessons, I say instead of saying, to that person for feedback, stop moving or stop shuffling about. What is it you actually want? Well, you want them to stand still or hold the space or remain, remain grounded. And it's very hard for us to say what we want in other people. We normally say what we don't want, right? Or what we don't want. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to miss the penalty. I don't want to miss the train. And all the, we exam- do is the example in the, it's just to bring people up to speed here because you may hear it in our outro, which we haven't yet recorded because we haven't set that up yet. But I said, you know, we need to make sure in our outro we, that we, we we say something like, don't forget to subscribe. And by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm reminding you all now, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Harry came back to me and said, slight edit there, Nick. Can we just, instead of don't forget, just say remember to subscribe to the show. Is that right? Is that the yeah, gist? remember. Because the way I try to explain it is the, the, the mind, the, the, the subconscious mind doesn't really process negatives, even though that's a bit of an oxymoron in what I've said. But what I mean is that it tends to focus on the thing that you is the, the the hook of the sentence. So if I said, um, don't think of anything you want, but don't think of a blue elephant. So whatever you do, don't think of a blue elephant. Think of something totally different, but not a blue elephant. Now, I'm betting at home people listening are either thinking of a blue elephant, or if they're thinking that they're not thinking of one, they had to have had a frame of reference for what that was in order to think about something else. Whereas had I said, just think of a red Ferrari, think of a red Ferrari, and never said the word elephant, you wouldn't be thinking about the blue elephant. Um, so the, the point is when we say like, it's like when you walk past a patch of grass that's neatly manicured and it says, don't walk on the grass, 
first thing a lot of people want to do is like, well, actually, I'm going to walk on the grass. You're telling me not to walk on the grass. I'm going to walk on the grass. Or don't look down or don't look at the yeah. crash site. You know? Exactly. Right. We, we tend to do it. Whereas if we just sit, like, so the classic example I give is for, for, for parents, right? So parents listening out there, listen to this, right? Um, when you say to your child, now bear in mind, your subconscious mind is like a five-year-old child, very similar. And it takes things personally and it doesn't process negatives just like a five-year-old child. So you say to your five-year-old or four-year-old who's run away from you and running in the street, don't run in the street. All that child is really hearing is running the street. And then when you tell them off because they run in the street, they get confused because they're doing exactly what you said. Whereas had you said what you actually wanted, what did you actually want? You wanted them to wait by the curb or stay by the side or hold my hand, right? Or stop. Something like that. Or stop, right? That's what you wanted as opposed to don't run in the street. And the, the way I try to explain this to like younger generation is imagine you're on a mobile phone and you're having a conversation with someone and you say to that person, um, you know, don't leave your keys at home or don't leave that jacket at home. And the phone cuts out for a fraction of a second on the word don't. All that person is going to hear is, oh, leave your jacket at home. When you said don't leave your jacket at home. Whereas what you really wanted to say was bring your jacket as opposed to don't leave it at home. Does that make sense to you? It does. A couple of things I want to unpick from what you've said. Uh, one of them, actually, for those listening that maybe work in leadership roles or want to work in leadership roles, uh, obviously I, I run a business and I'm, I'm operating a leadership role myself. So you talked a little bit without knowingly or unknowingly about Pareto's law there, the 80-20. Not everyone may be mm. familiar with Pareto's law, but the idea being the 80-20 equation is, is, is prevalent in many things that we do. Um, and what was interesting is you were talking there in, in, in terms of productivity and, and the way that we train. If you are working in leadership role, it's also true that we sometimes we try and do a one size fits all approach to, to management, but actually 20% of your workforce are often responsible for 80% of the output. So just mm. by focusing on that 20%, actually, you can greatly, greatly enhance what you're trying to do. That was just something that picked up when you, when you were talking about it, but also you talked about our ancestors. And I think this was quite interesting. You talked about, I love the lion poo example with the cave, right? But the reality is our ancestors typically suffered with a you know, with scarcity. They, they were, they were fighting to survive. I know you talk about survival being one of your core values, but we are one of the first humans ever since the dawn of time who don't actually suffer, certainly in the first world here in the UK, we don't actually suffer from scarcity in the same way, but it's still really inherent within us to fear for space, for, to fear for change because we're still in that survival. And I still think it'll take a couple of generations till we break out of that. I'm bringing it back right back full circle to the Lee McQueen quote, but it's the hope that kills us. It's the change that he's scared about. And I think that's where it links to the, the ancestral bit as well. We are often fearful of change, the change of managers, the change at the top, you know, the other manager's gone. Actually, pre the sacking of Antonio Conte at Spurs, who was our manager at the time, for those that aren't football fans, there was loads of criticism. He was doing a really bad job. But now he's gone. Now there's all the fear that we've got rid of a really good man. It's just interesting how the narrative changes. And yeah. it's the change that people are often very, very fearful of. I, I would I would probably granulize it a little bit more and say whether I think it's it's less the change and more um the change that is, I guess, either not their decision to change or not or forced upon them. And also it's not so much the fear of the change, but it's more the fear of the unknown that the change brings. Because we often fear what we don't understand. And when we're 
because sometimes we're excited by change. For example, like New Year's Day comes and go, right, I'm excited. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change this. And you get excited by that. But that's because that's driven from you as opposed to a company downsizing and suddenly there's a change of personnel, change of man. And you're like, oh, what's this new manager going to do to our role or, or whatever? So it's that change where it's thrust upon you as opposed to initiated from you. And then the fear of the unknown of what that change brings. And I think it's going to be more than a couple of generations to get past this idea because it's, it's, it's part of our blueprint. It's part of oh. our genetics. Because if you think about it, change did bring risk, right? If we, we were always, um, we spent generations walking across the earth to, to span to where we've got to. And every change of environment brought new threats new problems right whether we would get food whether we'd be there something to eat us this is what i was linking to with the scarcity the survival i mean since even our grandparents were living in an era really where you had to really hard almost hard labor to survive to put food on the table we're living in an era of abundance now but i still think inherently somewhere in the back of our minds we're still fighting for survival we are and that i mean this this is this this is that's what i'm saying it's imprinted into our dna and i don't think it's going anywhere if i'm honest because it's this idea like for example rejection right now we talked i think i don't know if we talked about this on the recording or not i think we did when we way back in the first episode and you were saying oh you're quite confident with women back when you're a teenager and this and the other a lot of people fear rejection right whether that's from uh, an advance and to the opposite sex or someone you're attracted to or some other way and part of the reason is like you know if you were if you depended on your survival for uh, your tribe of 100 people or 50 people, and you were rejected from that tribe for some reason or another, um, that meant effectively certain death because you were like ostracized from the tribe. You had to survive by yourself. And that's why that fear of rejection could be so deep in a lot of us because a lot of this is part of our DNA now. And I, th- I don't think it's going to take a generation or two for for some of these things to change because they're it's p- part of what's made us us. And it might take... A lot longer, right? Obviously, there's always change. I, right? I, agree, I agree. I would challenge a little bit on the certain death because I think uh, we don't know. This. I still go, we don't know what we don't know. No, you we don't. You get ostracized from your tribe, right? That could be the big, uh, you could there'll be positive. Well, you there. might walk around the corner another, and there might be a massive tribe who've suddenly got all jacuzzis and spas everywhere and you might be better exactly. off. Right? Um, but we often... But we're still feeling our thinking. This is the point, right? When we go back to it. Because if you lose the reject, if you use the rejection as an example uh, that you mentioned a minute ago, what we're fearful we're fearful of a thought that hasn't happened. It's still, a, it's still a situation that hasn't happened yet. So we create stories in our mind and we feel those stories, but that's all they are until we go and ask the girl, the guy, whatever oh, yeah. it is, what the, what our question is, and until we actually get that response, everything else is made up. Yeah. So oh, we feel nerves, we feel anxiety, we feel sad, we feel anxious, we feel, but it's all made up. It's all, they're all stories yeah, made up. We're feeling our thinking. You, you, you'll know the quote that I'm going to butcher in a second, but it's like, <laughs> it's quite like a Mark Twain kind of person, but he says, you know, I've experienced many turmoil and strife in my life, some of which even happened. Yeah, some of which is true, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. I can't remember who it was, although you got words, but it was something along those lines. And and the reality is that's true. Like most of our experiences, I would argue almost a hundred percent to be fair, of our experiences are internal, right? Because it, it's our our inputs that we're where you know we don't see with our eyes, for example, we see with our brain, right? The the lights coming in and, and we create these pictures in our head actually of what we're seeing. Our experience is our reality. Um but the problem is, I think there's a phrase in NLP which says the map is not the territory. 
Okay, the map is not the territory. What that means is that your experience, I guess, of the event is not necessarily the event itself. It's just your experience of the event because we can have different experiences from the same event. And I think it's just such a key thing to understand because our suffering comes from the meaning that we attach to what we're experiencing or not experiencing. Sure. And and so although pain might be inevitable, suffering, I think it's the Buddha said, is optional or so, something along those lines. And it's, it's what you we need- you need the pain, you need the yin and the yang to have the excitement, right? I mean, I, I was moaning last last session, two weeks ago, really angry and frustrated. I picked up an injury, right? And I really was. It's it's, it's throwing my training. I've not done any running since. And I was really quite down in the dumps about it. But it's without those knockbacks, you know, it's, it's the negative that gives you the positive. If everything was always yeah. a clear run, if everything always went the way you wanted it, yeah. I mean, where do you get your high from? It, it's it's coming right. through, I know it's a cliche, but as you often say, there's, if, you, if, 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 there's, if you hear a cliche, there's often some truth in it. It's coming out of adversity. I mean, it's a minor adversity in the scheme of things, having a, having a quad strain, right? But knowing I've gone through that and then still managed to getting a result at the end of it, knowing that I had a setback will give you the greater high at the end of that, end of that journey. Well, we live in what I call a relativistic universe, right? Nothing means anything except for it's relative to something else, right? You're yeah. only cool relative to like, I don't know, let's say a six-year-old who's short, Right. Um, this is only good relative to something that you consider bad, right? Nothing, everything is relative to something else. So the high is relative to a low. If there was nothing to relate it to, then it wouldn't be a high. It would just be a thing. I don't know. Um, so I think that's something really important to understand. Um, there was something else I wanted to jump on, but I've, I've totally forgotten. Um, but I do want to go back to this idea of hope, uh, you know, that kills you because actually, like we're saying, it's, it's the interpretation of the event itself that can actually then, because the thing is, if you bring your hopes up a lot, like, you know, I've had lots of things like, you know, you have a great meeting with someone and, you know, they're going to publish your book or bring you on a podcast or do this. And then, yeah, or yeah. Bring you to, and then it doesn't work. And then you do it again and it doesn't work. You do it again. It doesn't work. And sometimes you get like, it's this whole idea. I talk about people who fail with more successful, unsuccessful person. It's a successful person because they keep going from failure to failure to failure to failure until they just get that one success that they need. Whereas the unsuccessful person will fail three or four times or 10 times and give up. But I can see that the hope can kill you because, um, if you keep getting that disappointment, it's like stress, right? People think stress is bad, right? It's neither good nor bad, but. It's your interpretation of what that event creates that makes it a positive or negative experience on your biology. So if you feel that the thing that you've got, this adversity, is creating a stronger version of you, like let's say you're imprisoned, right, in a prisoner of war camp, right? For, you know, I hope that never happens to anyone, but let's say... Yeah, Victor Frankl is still fresh in your mind here, I can tell. Well, I've got it written down here, that's why. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, if you believe that that's somehow a positive stress on you in some way, shape or form, it's going to have a different effect on your body than if you think, oh, it's hopeless, then it will have a negative effect. This is why he was talking about hope um, as being a, a, a driving indicator of success coming out of those camps. And it's it's just so true. And it just goes back to the whole idea. It's just how you see the world. It goes back as well to... The idea of it's the journey. I know again, another cliche here. It's the journey, not the destination. Right? We're so focused on the destination. You know, Victor Frankl, in his example, he's 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 come away from the thinking of when I get out or whatever happens next. This is living in the now. It's living in the the hope of the hope of the next hour tomorrow. The hope he could help somebody else. 
Um, you know, as a, I think I've used the Everest example before, right? It's the journey to the top. That the, that's the experience of the view at the end is due to the great journey. And if you've got, you know, whisked to the top by helicopter, the view is, is very different to that individual because you haven't experienced the same journey to get there. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. And even in the, the injury that I talked about in the last episode, right? If I, I was too focused on the destination in that episode and I can see it now looking back and I reflect and I've listened to it and think, yeah, oh God, I was so focused on the end result of the race I'm training for that actually the enjoyment of the journey completely disappeared for the whole course. I mean, you help, you help me see some light by the end of the show, but it's about taking stock of, you know, what's this all about? If we're only focused on the destination, we're kind of setting ourselves up for, for disappointment. Even in the Spurs example, right? Only one person team can win the league. Only one team can win a cup. So you've got to enjoy the, the football. You've got to enjoy the journey. You've got to enjoy the, the ups and downs, the transfers, the tribulations, not just focus on the end bit, or you're just going to be, you know, just knocked down with, with potential disappointments along the way. I mean, this goes back to, you know, everything that we talk about in mindfulness and spirituality a lot of the time where we're talking about being present and, and the present moment is all we've got. And, and to kind of be a bit more aware of that present moment and, you know, being grateful as well is a huge part of it for like sure. when I've had injuries or when I've had things, you know, I'm grateful for other things and being able to, this is why that gratitude log was such a, I mean, I, 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 t- I recommend all my coaching clients start one, even if they feel great about their lives, because it is hands down the single biggest lever that I think someone can pull on their own mental, physical well-being is to focus on the gratitude. I'm not saying that you are digging your head in the sand and ignoring all, all the, all the things that are going on. I'm talking about see the good as well as the bad, right? Sure. Like not just having that 80% bad and the 20% good when the reality is it's probably skewed the other way, if not even more. And so by having that, it really fundamentally rewires your brain. There was an interesting documentary that I watched with you will, you will know my, Dr. Michael Mosley, who's, um, that TV doctor who's on yeah. BBC yeah. years ago. This was like maybe 12 years ago. This was after I was doing the gratitude, but he was doing a personality thing because he was a bit negative, right? So he did a couple of things. He did some mindfulness training, but he also did um some, not CBT, but something along those lines. But basically his exercise was this. He, he had a screen and they flashed up images of people like with roughly the same expressions, but there were some which were more smiley than others. And he had to like seek out the the ones which were more joyful. Did that for about six weeks. And at the end, and they do like a benchmark test and a test, you know, for positivity at the beginning and end and, and that. And he'd become like way more positive. Um, because he was doing it at the same time as mindfulness, you couldn't quite say whether it's one or the other. But effectively, he was doing the same as what I was talking about, which is a gratitude list in a way that you're looking for the good amongst maybe all the bad stuff. And now I cannot tell you how much it changes your life because I will be in the dire of circumstances, right? You know, let's say, I don't know, I'm cycling home. Oh, this isn't the dice of circumstances, but let's say <laughs> You've right, got I'm, cycling, I'm cycling home. It's raining. <laughs> like I get a puncture. I haven't got a like, thing on me or whatever. I'm going to be late for something. And I'm not going to get really caught up in that moment in the same way that I would have done 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I will think to something good about that. Like, oh, I managed to make it two thirds of the way home before this happened, at least, as opposed to, oh, I've still got five miles left to go. And we're like, oh, I can probably fit this bike in, uh, into, a, into a taxi and, and get home that way. You know, I'll be thinking very differently. Um, 
I just can't emphasize how, how life changing it is. It really is. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think actually you, you bring another good thing into play there, which is, um, the, the relevancy of your exist of your, of your current circumstance. So we, I, you know, we both understand. I don't need to answer, speak for you here that there are more dire circumstances out there than getting a punch or being in the wet. Okay. But it's what you're experiencing in the now, right? That we, that there's relative. And you talk a lot about relative, relativity. Uh, yeah, relativity. Yeah. yeah, or relativistic yeah. universe. But yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. It brings up, um, uh, I, you know, I love stories, but I don't even know the stone cutter story. You might, it's quite a famous, uh, like a parable, I guess, for one of the things. Stone cutter. So he's a, he's a, he's a, um, a, a stone cutter for, for a living, pretty poor. And a, a wealthy merchant comes out of his house selling wares. And he sees this merchant and sees him because, oh, he's really rich. And as the merchant leaves the house, the stone cutter thinks to himself, oh, I wish I could be a merchant. How great my life would be. And somehow he becomes a merchant instantly. He goes, oh, this is amazing. I become a merchant. This is everything I always wanted. And he's going and he's selling his wares as this merchant. And he suddenly sees a king who's being carried along in a big sedan chair and everyone's worshipping the king. He goes, oh, I'm just a merchant. Just imagine how amazing it would be if I was carried along as a king. I wish I was a king carried along on a sedan chair. And Bush, suddenly, you know, what do you know? He's a, he's become this, 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 this king being carried and worshipped by everybody. This is amazing. It's what I've always wanted. But as he's carried on this chair in the blazing sun in the desert, Sunny's in the desert. And um, he suddenly goes, oh, it's so hot. It's so hot. This is really uncomfortable. I can't move. And I mean, all these king's clothes and everything else. God, the most powerful thing in the world has to be the sun. I wish I could be the sun. And it becomes the sun. And if you know the song, can you see this at the end? Because I, I love this story anyway. So it becomes the sun and he's amazing. He's like powering this, these rays all the way down. I'm so powerful. And then these big storm cloud comes in, a big black cloud that blocks the rays of the sun to the earth. He goes, oh, I thought it was the most powerful thing in the world, but this storm cloud is able to block me. I wish I was a storm cloud. That must surely be the most powerful thing in the world. And he becomes a storm cloud. And he's putting down the storms and throwing the rain on everybody. And he's enjoying himself until a big gust of wind blows him off course. And he's got nothing to do to control it. But, oh my God, I wonder if the wind could just be the thing I need to be. That's surely the most powerful thing in the world if I was the wind. So I wish I was the wind and he becomes the wind. And sure enough, he's blowing clouds along and he's creating great storms. And he's, you know, huge, huge, huge winds across the land to show how powerful he is. Until he hits a mountain and the mountain doesn't move. And he gusts and he gusts and he pushes and he pushes and the, the mountain is absolutely immovable. So, wow, surely the most powerful thing in the world is the immovable objects of the mountain. I wish I was a mountain. He becomes a mountain. And anyway, he has this mountain. He stood there nice and tall. But every year he sees this little man comes to the bottom of the mountain and chip away and chip away and breaks away bits of the mountain every day, day by day to part of a quarry. And eventually the, the mountain gets chipped and he gets smaller and smaller. Because, oh, I thought I was the most powerful thing in the world. How wonderful it would be to be the person who could chip away at the mountain. And once more, he becomes the stone cutter. I've probably made that slightly convoluted. I may have got. I, know, the I like it. I'm not. I don't know if I've heard that before or not. It doesn't ring a bell, but we always want the next thing until we well, realise it's not. I mean, like, it reminds me of the phrase that I'm sure we're all familiar with, and it's somewhat similar. Where it's like the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but the reality yeah. is the grass is always greener where you water it, right? And so, if you focus on your own garden, that's where the grass will be greener. If you just focus on what you are in the moment you know, the grass will be greener. You don't have to constantly be, and this is, 
this brings us to a conversation I want to have another time actually with uh, with with you, which is about things like social media. Because, well, let's throw that uh, out. What is it you want to talk about? I mean, it's a longer discussion in a way, but like what, what I was going to say in, in regards to social media right now um, is is that we're constantly looking at other people's wind and sun yeah. and and rocks and chariots and merchants by doing that, and actually, I. I don't think I've been on it on Instagram or uh, Facebook. I haven't really done for years, but like even Instagram for a long time because, or even LinkedIn, I'm really bad at social media at the moment, but um, it's just a window into someone else's five minutes that they want to show. And it is constantly creating, and I'm actually much happier by not seeing these things each day or each week, week or each month even because I feel way happier from, from doing that than like, cause otherwise I'll, I'm not perfect at, at, by any stretch in many things. And one thing I will definitely be comparing myself to is like, Oh my God, that person's got a bigger reach than me or, Oh, their books done better over sure. here. And, and, and it just makes, doesn't make me feel good. We talked about an episode one, right? Comparison is the stealer of all yeah. joy. Focus on your own garden, as you were talking about earlier, right? Not everyone else. Exactly. We've got to remember social media is all about showing the best version of ourselves in that moment. The windows that we want to show the world, not the real yeah. window. My wife has come completely off Facebook. She she has a profile, but she hasn't logged in for probably two or three years. And it just, mm. it wasn't healthy. And she'd look at things, and say, oh, they're living, you know, I know, Australia, whoever it is, and you see the pictures on the beat, you don't see the personal life behind that, the yeah. struggle, the school, whatever it is that's, that's impacting. We show the bits we want to see. So she's yeah. just come off completely. I haven't, but I'm very, I'm really on it. Occasionally yeah. on Instagram, occasionally on Facebook, but not not a lot. I mean, even um, when I was on it, I used to do, as, as Joe Rogan says, post and ghost, you know, so I just post what I want to go and then go off. And, and, and most of what I would say is be a creator, not a consumer like with many things in life. So 80% of my time on social media will be to create something, 20% to consume. Um, but I tend to like, I mean, years ago, anyway, I put a newsfeed blocker on Facebook about six, seven years ago, like a, a special like CSS file that then just blocks the newsfeed. So I never saw anything anyway. Uh, I would just go on to see if any notifications came on. And now I don't even, and I took it off my phone years ago. Um, and you've, you've actually touched upon something there that I think is quite interesting. And that is the consuming, you said creator, not consumer, which I like. Yeah. I think the pandemic highlighted for lots of people that actually consuming only gets you so far. A lot of people pre-pandemic would have thought, oh, I wish I had an opportunity to just do nothing, sit at home, play video, whatever it is you want to do, video games, do nothing, you know, not have to work. And it didn't take long for people to realise that without that purpose they actually got very, very, you know, we know mental health went through the roof in terms of mental health being an issue. Maybe we all have mental health, but negative mental health went through the roof. Where people without purpose struggle. And you call it create, you know, either creative or consuming, which I like. I would always say that you need to be producing. Purpose comes from producing something, not from consuming something. And mm. it's always worth looking back at what is it you, that you're really proud of producing? What does you enjoy producing? Because that's usually where you'll find your purpose. We rarely find it. From cons- we need a bit of consuming time now and again to, to yeah. recover. And get, but it's, it's not where we find our few selves. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is about just like, it is getting those numbers like a bit like the Pareto, right? It's like, okay, 80% of my time is creating stuff. 20% is consuming yeah. stuff. That's probably all right. That's probably fine. I'd agree. Yeah. Where it flips around the other way. And, and again, this kind of back to, I'm talking about mindful consumption or mindful, like doing things a little bit more mindful or mindfully with awareness. And, and I was saying to, you know, my friend yesterday who popped around, hadn't seen for a while, I was like, 
I and we were talking, I was talking about the podcast and I was saying, like, um, you know, I'm going to do things that maybe are not always going to be so, so beneficial for my health or well-being, right? So yesterday I decided to have some crisps and, and some chocolate, but I'm doing that with awareness, right? So I'm like saying, I'm aware that I don't really want to eat chocolate after 4 p.m. So I had it, had it before, right? And so I'm doing that knowing full well what it's going to do to me if I have a piece of bread or I have this because I'm, I'm, I'm aware. So I'm never someone that says, oh, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. It's just if you do it with awareness, then fine. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going on. And you're conscious in your decision making. And I think it is about being a bit more conscious in life. Um, you can't always be conscious because it's a lot of work and, and, and actually life tends to go by a lot quicker unconsciously. Uh, otherwise, if we had to consciously think about everything we were doing, it would just I, be exhausting. I think it's quite interesting, right? Because you and I are very different. I mean, the, the audience, I'm sure, will get to know that as we as we go through the shows. And yeah, actually, our values are very, very similar. And the way, you know, our core beliefs are pretty similar, but the way we do things is very different. And um, I like to skip. Well, I, I'll say this because you, something I've, and I, I hate this as well, by the way, so I'll preempt it. We're, both of us hate being put into boxes. That's just, and I, I did this, uh, I've done this to you a couple of times. I'll say, you know, Harry's vegan, I'm not. And you're the first thing who says, I'm not vegan, actually. You live 95% of your, or maybe that's changed a little bit. But when we last went out, which was a couple of years ago, uh, actually drinking alcohol, which you don't really drink. But I remember yeah. you saying to me, I don't really drink, but I'll make a couple of exceptions a year for the right opportunity. And I'm aware that today I'm going to do it. I'm going to have a good time. Or, you know, not in this particular instance. And food-wise as well, you say, I'm, I'm vegan most of the time, but sometimes I'll just, eat me or I'll, I'll do something different because I'm making no, conscious I'll do choice yeah I'll do it consciously like like so yesterday I don't eat bread but I decided that I wanted this non bread from this place and I know that what it's going to do to me right I know that my my sinuses will be a little bit blocked up and naturally as a result I'm not going to sleep as well which is not not great because I had to be up and about at six o'clock today working but but I but I wasn't like cycling the next day. Now, if I was cycling with you guys, this is why I, when we do our cycle trip, I w- won't drink except for maybe on that last night once we've done the, yeah. done the actual, because I know what I'm like and I know that I'm not going to perform and I don't do, I mean, none of us really do much training for these cycle trips, but I'm not training to do lots of cycling. And I know that I want the, as many advantages as possible, not like suddenly be dehydrated, have a hangover and, and all of this. And, and then my muscles won't work as well, all of this. But on the last night, we've done all the cycling. I'm just going to get the flight the next day. Or normally we take an extra day anyway. Then I'm okay. I'm okay with, you know, and it's not like I'm going to drink massively. And when I do drink, I'm then going to mostly drink, say like a vodka and soda or something like that. Anyway, that's going to be fine for me uh, as opposed to, beers and everything else that is basically going to give me a poor head the next day. I mean, this comes with experience though, of course. Um, so for me, it's about, you know, doing that with awareness, deciding what, you know, is, is the, is the juice worth the squeeze basically? Right. The thought on everyone's lips right now, certainly on mine is, was the non-bread worth it? Um, (laughs) I think it was because it was a it was a small effect. It wasn't it wasn't right. big enough. Yeah. So it I was, mean, we, you and I had a, a great night in uh, in St Albans. It was, and I remember you know yeah. I was doing really pressure on you at all. We were going out and we had a, a fair number of drinks. We ended up in a club dancing away, and it was because um, you said it was yeah. like I only you know probably ever let myself go out this once, maybe maybe twice a year, and you're making a conscious. You know you're going to feel rough the next day. You'll go out. You'll have I don't know not ridiculous amounts, but you'll go and have like three or four large beers or maybe even more 
And then you'll still be able to cycle and be at the front of the pack the next day and do it with nothing in your, like one water bottle, right? I'm, I've got two 750ml water bottles topped to the brim. Nick's got this one 500ml water bottle with probably Coke in it or something like that. I don't Diet know Coke, yeah, usually. Diet Coke or something. And no water. And he's had like six beers the night before and has eaten a massive baguette for breakfast at the hotel or something. <laughs> like he like goes for it. And it's like, it's like your brain doesn't register that your body might be, or maybe, maybe in some level of situation. I don't know. You just, it's like they're working differently and you're just like, right, I'm going there. I'm just doing it regardless of what my body says. I, I don't, don't tend to get thirsty. I the, the muscles, the, the everything else must be. Less they probably are. I mean, I, you know, I, I get tired. But actually, I've got a lot better. I, mean, I don't know if anyone else is uh, is, is into athletics or, or, or you know, running, triathlon, whatever. But I knew it was an issue because I don't get thirsty. But of course, it has an impact on my physiological system, my my ability to perform. And because I don't get thirsty, I can't always identify when my body needs fluid or needs to be hydrated. I can make a guess at it, and I've, I've got better because I know it impacts performance, particularly over long you know, long distance events. So I'm doing you know, Ironman events, which are 3.8k swim, 180k bike, you know, marathon to finish. If you don't hydrate, you're in trouble. So I went and got a sweat test done by Precision Hydration. And actually, they measured how much um, salt I lose in my sweat and how much I need. And I was shocked. So I was in a very high category. So I lose just over 1,550 milligrams of salt per hour, which is in the high range. They then give you, prescribe you a, a number of salts you should take in each litre of water, which I now actually quite mathematically, I don't feel thirsty, but I know that I'm losing it because the science tells me I am. Yeah, so true. I can replenish on schedule, even if I don't mm. feel like I'm thirsty. Massive positive impact on my performance levels, for sure. I wonder, like, because you're losing so much salt per how much you're sweating, maybe that was your body's survival way of not having, because if you consume too much just normal water, then you're going to dilute what's left sure, of the salt, sure. which would actually be worse. So actually, maybe it was beneficial for you because you were like, if I have well, just bodies adapt, up. right? Bodies are very, yeah. very clever. Very yeah, clever if, you, if you had too much water, you would be like you'd have too diluted salt content. So actually, yeah, water with a little bit of salt in there, maybe it's more appealing. Most, I tend to live on on coffee, as you know. I'm really on a, a turmeric and ashwagandha herbal tea right now. Very good. I, I you know, notice the lack of shock on my face with your as far as it's not a smoothie. How is someone on the cycle tours? He brings a smoothie maker with him. And uh, creates his own smoothies. And Just before you- on the call, I, I, I prepped my um, my vegetables for tomorrow morning because I was like, get that done before we get on the call. So I'm all ready to go tomorrow. Smoothies, re- like the, the powders are ready, the, the vegetables ready because I, I need to be out early doors tomorrow so i remember just just bringing it back to the, the alcohol piece and you know i do drink i love you know one of the things i look forward to you work hard i look forward to a glass of wine with my wife in an evening there are some studies that say a glass of wine is good i'm i'm sure that could be debated but yeah. i enjoy it. it's good for my well-being because i enjoy that time with my wife yeah. you know we, we, she'll have that ready and it, it, it's not excessive drinking in that sense but we, we enjoy it and i remember going away to i think we were in ohio so i used to do a lot of obstacle course racing and it was the world championships. And I remember going out with my wife was there. She flew out with me and with a group and we, I was competing and uh, we went into a restaurant and bear in mind, we're in a, a new country, new place, new restaurant. And everyone else got out these Tupperwares of seeds and nuts and all of this, you know, yeah. I would say performance enhancing, but legal uh, diets they were having pre-race. Yeah. And obviously I was, I had a beer and a, and a whatever. And my wife said to me, if you ever end up like that, like you're taking this way too seriously, like, you're nearly at that at the time. I'm over forty now, but you're nearly forty years old. You're not going to make a career in this. 
We've come all the way out. The least you can do is sit down at a restaurant, have a nice glass of wine with me and a decent bit of food. If we if I had to start making nuts and seeds and Tupperwares for you, then, you know, this... We're oh, yeah, beginning is- the start, that would be over. That would be over. Yeah. What I would say is I, I still think, like, and I say this all the time, like, if you just optimise that nutrition, optimise that water... You know, forget amateur levels. You'd be you'd be up there with the pros, I'm sure. It might be true. Maybe. I don't know because I'm not going to change that. But there's a little bit here that I think is worth holding on to, which is about prioritization. And I think yeah. my wife has a point. Like, yeah. for me to really enjoy that trip, it's not just about the race. If we go back to that journey piece. It's about yeah. enjoying a restaurant out with my wife yeah. and having a nice time, a nice conversation. Not something that if I go down the other angle, actually is going to peeve her off. It's going to create a, a, an atmosphere. It's not ultimately what I want to eat. So I'll be eating it thinking I really wanted that, but this is, you know, you don't actually enjoy the experience as my, yeah. in my particular. I mean, if you're into no, no, no. I, I agree with you. And this is actually where I come in and I say, and people sometimes say to me, but you know, you're not drinking, you're not really enjoying it or you're not eating this, you're not enjoying it. But actually I don't think necessarily that the experience is that two hour segment, right. Or that four hour segment. I think of it as that 12 or 15 hour segment. Sure. I'm also seeing myself the next morning and the, the experience of riding the bike or whatever the thing is. And I want to enjoy the entire experience. And, and actually a lot of time, you know, me, like I used to hate going on these, um, so I, I did a lot of stag do's, but especially in 2008, there was an influx of eight stag do's in, in one year. And I hate this whole buying rounds and drinking if i'm honest because i drink a lot slower i don't like drinking beer i've never been into that and i realize it's probably the gluten and the wheat and the yeast that puts you into a pressure situation as well yeah and and i'm like i don't enjoy that as an experience i don't want to and when i kind of became a little bit more confident with just saying no you know what you do your thing i'll I'll just you know buy the old vodka soda when i want it you know i'm gonna enjoy it and i'll get tipsy and i'll drink to the level i want but when i'm let's say in a group of eight Last time I drank eight pints, right? And this might come down to it as well, that in, in an evening, I was 15 years old, I think. I have a history with drinking as a teenager as well, but uh, I was 15 years old in Cyprus with one of my best mates from, from childhood. And I was just like staying over their, their villa and I was just violently sick. And his mum had to like have this bucket near, near my bed, like the, the couch that I was sleeping on and all this. And I've had like experiences like that when I was 12 years old. I went to a wine festival and five pounds to get in in Limassol and all the wine was free. I was absolutely trashed, right? Um, <laughs> both my sister and I, she was only 10 at the time. I don't know what this is saying about parenting, but my mom, my parents are brilliant parents. They knew how to, cause we never had issues when we were adults um, in terms of like going to university and partying too much. But um, I gave up wine actually for about 10 years after that. I gave up alcohol for a long time as well. And um, and these things are the things that I think about when I see a glass of wine. I, in my, in the back of my mind, I've got like an image of me getting off that bus and throwing up at 12 years old, which is when the first time I was sick or, or the fact that I've been sick from alcohol probably over 200 times. And that's in the space of between the ages of about 12 and probably 32. So in that 20 year span, at least 200 times. And then the last 10 years or 15, 10, 15 years, I've, basically haven't drunk much. And that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm seeing as the experience. Because we've gone full circle and I'll tell you for why. And this is about thoughts controlling our feelings. So for you, the thought of a, of a, of a glass of wine or thought of wine will drum up past experience 
you know, images, feelings, all those emotions that, that, that your body is able to create because your thoughts create your feelings, right? And even that's a, you're reminiscing on a thought and remembering and there's emotional memory in there. And for you, it's relatively negative in terms of connotation of what it brings back. So there's a story for me which does the complete opposite. It might be why I mentioned wine, because actually sometimes we'll enjoy an old-fashioned, we'll have a gin and tonic, but wine is always the one I think of in terms of positive emotion. And there's a story that I'll, I'll tell. It was told to me when we you know, got two kids. We used to go to NCT classes. And the leader we had in that class said a story about look, you know, looking after your partner when it gets stressful being a parent, right? So the story she gave is, let's say you've had a really hard day at work and I don't know, I've been working all day. You've had complaints to deal with. You've had to sort of firefight. Someone's maybe had a notice here. It's just been a really, really bad day. We tend to get very focused on how it's impacted us, right? And then you get home. The first thing you come back to, you've got your kids crying and you've got to try and, you know, maybe a potty training or whatever's going on. It's just, oh, you come out of the fire pan into the fire. And then so what you do to get over that is you pour yourself a glass of wine. Right. And think, right, that's it. I just need to, need to chill out. So the key to this is we have no idea what our partner's gone through. And maybe they've been at home with the kids all day and they've had a nightmare as well. The kids had a tantrum in the, in the supermarket. There's been meltdown. Uh, I don't know. The internet went or maybe they've been at work in the car, but whatever it is, we have no idea, but we're so focused on ourselves. We pour ourselves a glass of wine. What she said is beautiful thing to do. If you, if you're a wine drinker, when you come home from that terrible day, with no understanding of the other person, by all means, pour yourself a glass of wine, but always pour two mm. and just leave the other one there. Cause when your partner comes home or sees that sometimes it's all you need. I've had a really bad day. And I walk in now, my wife, my wife and I are both there for the same conversation. I probably haven't worded it very well, but even now, if I've been out for the day, I'll come back and there'll be a glass, often be a glass of wine there for me. It means a, I know she's already poured herself one TikTok, but two is she's also thought of me in that moment with yeah. no idea what my day has been like. But she knows if it's been crappy, that'll just ease the tension. And we try and do that for each other. So for me, and we always do that. It's like we have a little nod to each other now, even though we've done it thousands of times, probably a little nod. Yeah, she's thought of me or I've thought of her. And it's mm. nice. It's warming. And now for me, the, the connotation of a glass of red wine is for us. It's just, it only has to be one single glass, but it shows and means a lot more than just the wine itself. Yeah. It's representative of a thought of a thoughtful partner of the stress of the day dissipating or focusing on the, you talk about present earlier, suddenly being present in the room and coming out of the, the hells of the day and just going, you know, not obviously not all days are like that, but we're making the assumption, of course, when we pour that second glass that we don't know what the other partner's day has been like. So if we assume it hasn't been great, this is the way to ease that tension. And it's just a lovely way to start an evening. But interestingly, and you talked about this earlier, we, the people with the reference to social media, people really struggle to be in the present. And what that does, that single glass of wine takes me immediately into the present. It's okay. I haven't poured it myself. It's there when I come into the door. It's a bit like, I'm going to reference something else now, but we've got two dogs. You've had a terrible day. You walk in. If you've got a dog, they give you the best welcome. They have no idea what day you've had. All they know is the best part of their their day is seeing you. And it's just transformative what that can do for you. If you you allow that in, somebody come in frustrated, oh, get out of the way. If you allow that that warmth in, that that excitement Mm. in, it's overwhelming and it's overwhelming because it takes you into the present. Yeah. Immediate bang. Oh, I'm here. And you breathe and you stop. You take stock. Yeah. Boom. Red wine, dog, right. whatever. There yeah. are no problems in the present. This is like the old, um, there are no, there are no problems in the now, in the present moment, because usually your problems are, you know, Oh, what's going to happen if I don't pay this bill? Or sure. what's gonna happen? It's in the future or you got, 
you know, in the past where you have feelings of regret or whatever, but actually in that moment right then, yeah, yeah, what is the problem, you know? And in and, and now, you've always got options. I mean, the benefit of hindsight is a, another cliche, right? But we, we know what we would have done and because we've already seen it happen, we learn from those mistakes. We don't know what's coming. So it's easy for us to get anxious about what we don't know. But actually in the now, you've always got options. In any circumstance, you've got an option, options in front of you at any moment if you're living in the now. If you breathe, if you, that's an option just sometimes just to just to slow down, to speed up. I tell people, breathe. breathe. It brings you, it's the one thing that brings you into the present. Right? You focus on that breath and, and, the, and then things disappear. And it doesn't mean that you ignore the things that you need to deal with. It just helps you approach those with uh, a better vision of what you might need to do as opposed to, because if you're if you're in that stress state, you become into that primal fear brain side where you can't make proper decisions. And actually, I think a lot of uh, decisions in the last few years have come from uh, from governments and places in a fear state. Right? There's a lot of fear, and and actually, we're going to see. And we don't. We're not going to get into this today, or maybe even at all in future podcasts. But as people start to unravel the situations that have happened over the last few years and decisions that were made and actions that were taken. It's, it's, it's it was evident to me right from the beginning that people were thinking from uh, that primal instinctive brain. I can't remember Daniel Kahneman talks, I think again, against system one and system two thinking that system one really fast thinking. I think it was thinking fast and slow that book where, where that, you know, you, you kind of that knee jerk reaction almost with that, you know, let, we've got to do something, we've got to do this, right? Whatever it is, even though actually if you just step back and you think, actually think about this, look at the data, look at this, what is all this saying? You come to it from a different approach. You come to it from your, what I call the person brain, which is the, the outside part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, as opposed to the primal brain, which is that kind of central part of the brain and i think when you're in that center brain which you do get into when you don't breathe properly which most people don't do then you're going to come at things without real cognitive powers well i mean you know as soon as adrenaline starts going we hyperventilate and we panic when our breathing quickens our, our thought process change with it right so that's that's yeah. something that is just knowing a fight or flight and our everything quickens our heart rate quickens uh everything starts to yeah and the idea is to kind of like it's it's hard sometimes to be in the moment and then remember to breathe. But the reality is that because breathing is your most primal instinct, it's the first thing you do and the last thing you do, like in life, effectively. Um, once you can just snap into it for a second, because I felt this actually earlier, interestingly enough, um, as I was like seeing, oh, it's 7.20, 7.38, and I was getting, and I was like, how much can I get in before that 7.40? Because I wanted to... I saw it out of veg and now I had to clean up everything from before. And I've noticed, and when I get stressed, I notice tension specifically more on the right side of my neck, but also on the left, but mainly on the right. And I could feel, and I used to feel this a lot more, but in the last 12 years, I haven't. But whenever I get stressed in some, the first thing that is the telltale sign is this thing. And I'm like, okay, breathe. I get it in the back of my neck. Yeah, there is a name for it because my, my wife's a, a massage therapist, sports massage therapist in the main, but she's having just the, um, sort of therapeutic massages there that eases tension and stress. And I get a lot of it. Certainly I get a lot of it in the back and there's a name for it, which I don't know because it's not what I do. Mm. But she tells me all the time, I get a lot of stress in the back of my neck here. Oh, it's really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable to be massaged actually, but it, it's obviously necessary because she works hard on it and she'll be like, Oh my God, it's really tense or I can feel lumps or, or how that Figure out your tails. If you figure, because when I feel that's happening, I'm like, Ah, oh, I notice where I'm breathing. I'm breathing up into the chest instead of into the diaphragm. And I'm like, 
okay, now I'm going to breathe out for longer. Now I'm going to do this. And actually, you know, I might be a couple of minutes late to the call. It's not the end of the world, right? Focus on seven breaths will bring you back to the brain and just count seven. And usually whatever you're confronted with will look slightly different after seven. I mean, you might have a different number, but for me, it seems like seven breaths and then reassess the situation. And you may find you have a slightly different outlook. We tend to react immediately and part of that survival, part of that is fear actually we, we react quickly because we're fearful and you use the word fear and uh, i've got an, an algorithm for that which is fear is typically anxiety plus uncertainty if you've got those two things together it creates fear we can often be anxious mm. but not fearful or we can be uncertain but not fearful if you have those two things together it creates what i would argue is is fear i try and rationalize it what am i anxious about what am i uncertain about can i remove one of those two things if i can remove the uncertainty That'll take away the fear. I'll just be anxious. And then I'll work on the anxiety. Or if I'm anxious about something and uncertain, can I remove the anxiety and keep the uncertainty and then work on that bit? And I can kind of break down the, the equation, which is what I've created in me that I believe fear is. And sometimes it, it just makes things a lot, it's all about slowing it down, not looking at it as one big beast, but going, okay, let's break this down. What are the things that I'm uncertain about? And can I make small adjustments here to, to, to reduce that uncertainty. Okay, I can speak. I can get support from my wife. I can speak to her about X, Y, and Z. Okay, that, that removes the uncertainty. But what am I anxious about now? What are the things that I'm worried about? Okay, it's other people's reactions to something or maybe they'll think I'm rubbish or whatever. Okay, what can I do to I'll prepare better? I'll, I'll converse with someone like yourself. I'll sense check it. Or, and eventually you move those two things and you can go in with, with, with full confidence. And it just takes sometimes breathing, settling in the now, Gentle reflections can be really helpful as well yeah. in, in that regard. And that's all about slowing, slowing down. Yeah, exactly. Slow down. So, Good place to leave, though, I think. If it's just a message, slow down, speed up, focus on the now, breathe. Remember that we are, you know, we started this this podcast episode with, with the idea of, of Lee saying is the hope that kills us. And actually that's that's a thought and changing that thought process. There's the thoughts that control our feelings. The meaning you put on them, as you always say, you know. Whatever you choose, it means, yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't. You know, what are you going to choose it to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's like Neo, right? Where in the, in the matrix where he's like, you know, they can die out there because the brain thinks it's real. Right. There you go. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, uh, we don't always want to be the stone cutter. It's talking about social media. It's always easy to look at others and think, I want to be that. But actually we forget to think about how good it is. We've got it right now. And, uh, it took him all those, all those moves to understand that actually stone cut is what we always wanted to be. But um, there we are. Been a good chat, buddy. I've enjoyed it. Good. good. Yeah. Nice one. All right, Harry. Take care, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. That brings us to the end of today's episode of Mindful Paths. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and found some valuable insights to help you on your journey, whatever that may be. Remember, your thoughts don't mean anything until you give them meaning. And as we've said before, mastering your mindset is a continuous journey, not a destination. If you found this episode helpful, please consider leaving us a review. And remember to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform so you never miss a future episode. Thank you for listening. I'm Harry Kalimnios. And I'm Nick Day. And we hope you will join us again in our next episode of Mindful Paths.